scripture text this morning is simply that singularly significant verse in First John, I mean in John chapter 1, verse 14. Reading that verse from the Well, quoting that verse from memory. (laughs) The Word became flesh. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this verse this morning, enable us to carry something of its great meaning into our hearts, into our lives, and to how we think about this season, above all, how we think about your Son, enabling us to give Jesus in our lives his rightful place, that we would love him, that we would follow him that we would serve him and that we would live in gratitude toward him for all that he has done. Bless, O Lord, then, our hearing of the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This prologue to the Gospel of John has highlighted the theme of darkness, the spiritual darkness which pervades the world. It is impossible to go through this season without experiencing that darkness in a number of different ways. Some might be incidental, accidental. Some might be insignificant. Some might have a bit of dark humor associated with it. Uh, Julie and I had such a dark humor experience this week. Uh, She received a Facebook request from a friend. The next day I received an email from the same person. But he died four years ago. Knowing then that his old accounts had been hacked, which is a little bit of darkness that we find in this world. A little more significant form of uh, darkness came across my emails this week. It came to the church website email, and it was addressed to me. Let me read the banner um, in terms of the heading of what it said. Um, My research thesis on Lord Jesus' intimate India connection. It was addressed to me this way. Most respected Reverend Pastor. Respectful salutations to you. I, Mr. Mohan A. Hosgetti, Bachelor of Science, age 83. After several years of research, published as a, quote, paperback, unquote, as well as an e-book, my research thesis, quote, Jesus, colon, a Hindu Essene, dash, not a Buddhist monk on the Kindle direct publishing, self-publishing platform. My book contains more than a dozen new, most interesting facts and findings which readers never knew before, and they will enjoy reading the same. 
I earnestly request you to purchase a copy of my paperback from the Amazon Kindle and review the same. In view of my senior age, I am a bit in a bit of a hurry. <laughs> Please reply early. I am anxiously looking forward to your reply with highest regards. It's highly doubtful that Mr. Hoskoti would really appreciate my review of his <laughs> book. Because even in its title, we see such an evidence of the world's spiritual darkness. Another instance came this week, far more personal. Uh, I received an email letter from my best friend, my oldest friendship that I have. He's depressed. This time of the year has given him a sense of hopeless darkness. The focal point is his oldest son and what his son is doing to his grandchildren. The son is filling their heads with what my friend sees as, quote, such garbage, unquote, that the earth is flat, that God is a myth and does not exist, that the heroes in the Bibles in the Bible are a bunch of murderers and adulterers and even worse, that Christianity is a cop-out, a way to be forgiven so that we don't really have to bear blame for our own mistakes. This is the darkness that his son lives in, the darkness that he's spreading to my friend's grandchildren. And then he spouts back all of this to his father in a haughty way. I am so much smarter than you. My best friend's heart is so heavy, so hurt, so sad. Vivid reminders that the darkness is real. I wrote back with Scripture's perspective, and I included these words. We will descend into darkness when we reject the light. It can't be humanly stopped. The evil in human beings which flees from the light is more powerful than the human beings themselves. To put it most clearly, the devil does not control evil. Evil controls the devil. Where the light has become dim, there is no power to increase the light again from within that it which is dimmed. Only some external power source can help. Man cannot fight the darkness from within himself. Only some power outside of him can help. And that is the story of Christmas. The light came from outside. My friend wrote back and he thanked me for the readjustment of his perspective. For expressing to him the truth. And that even in the midst of the darkness of this season, we can still celebrate it with the deepest sort of gratitude. Because here's the truth. We're to be grateful for the Christmas season because we are grateful for the Incarnation. We're grateful because in our helplessness, in the darkness which we could not fight, 
and which in that darkness we could not even see that it was darkness. God came to us from outside to give us the light who is the word of God, the word made flesh, to dispel the darkness. Dr. Leon Morris, a great scholar of a slightly earlier generation, stated this, that the greatest idea at the heart of the Christian faith is the theme of who Christ is. Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh for the salvation of the world. In verse 14, we have this expressed to us, which we can break down into three particular truths that we find in that verse. First, that he became one of us. Secondly, that he tabernacled among us. And thirdly, he displayed to us his glory. The fact that he became one of us and the way in which John expresses this is really the great difference that we find between the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and their nativity stories, and the way that John's Gospel begins. They begin with the humanity of Jesus, his, the narratives, the birth stories, the association with all the family members that, that Jesus possessed in coming into this world. John begins with the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's not until he comes down to verse 14 that John then begins to express the humanity of Jesus when he says, the Word became flesh. Now, it's interesting that both in the Greek and in the English, there are two kinds of becoming. There's the kind of becoming in which that which is changes into something else entirely different. There's the kind of coming in which that which is, in becoming, becomes something more, not something else. We see this illustrated in the Bible. Remember the story of Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Judgment is coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot lives. Lot flees with his family. They're told not to look back. But Lot's wife turns and looks back. She becomes a pillar of salt. She became that which she wasn't before. She became something entirely different. She was no longer Lot's wife. She was a pillar of salt. But later on in the story about Lot's life, he became the father of Moab and Ammon. But he didn't cease to be Lot. Something more happened, but it didn't change who he was. It's that second kind of becoming that John is talking about here. The Word became flesh. This did not diminish who the Word was. This did not change who the Word was essentially in terms of His divine nature. But something else was added to Him. The Word became flesh. The word flesh there representing that humanity that Jesus took unto Himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
he didn't cease to be anything that he was as God, but he became something that he had never been before. He became a true human being. Now, the full meaning of this, to articulate it in its fullness, not the idea, not the belief, not the understanding that Jesus was God, but the full articulation of that actually came through the process of about two and a half centuries of people outside of the church and sometimes inside of the church attacking the very nature of who Jesus was. And by the fourth century, we have, in fifth century, we have very, very clear articulation by the church as to who Jesus is in his incarnation. The Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, who took to himself a true human nature without laying aside any aspect of his divine nature. In the person of Christ, two complete and perfect natures, his eternal deity, his earthly but perfect humanity. This has always been recognized as a great mystery, which is to say that we understand it only so far and we can, by the virtue of our human intellect, even sanctified by the Holy Spirit, can understand it no further. But it is our confession the true confession of Jesus Christ, that the two natures of Jesus are united in as one person without any mixture of the divine and human, without any confusion of the divine and human, without any division of the divine and human, without any separation of the divine and human nature. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh. In the best of all the Advent and Christmas carols, this is one of the dominant themes that we sing. I was looking at a few of the hymns that we use during this season. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. Second stanza, speaking of Jesus, King of kings, yet born of Mary. There's the divine and the human. As of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he shall give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Second stanza. Come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. The hymn writers' recognition that the one who was born in the manger was the same one who gave the law to Moses. Hymn 201 in our Trinity hymnal, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Fourth stanza. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels 
the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us, the Incarnation, the Word made flesh. And then hark the herald angels sing. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Some of the contemporary Christian and Christmas music has also enunciated this with great clarity. My favorite is Mark Lowry's, Mary, Did You Know? In which he says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. The word became flesh. It is the greatest truth which separates the Christian faith from every other kind of religious expression. It is the central theme of this season. It is the light that dispels the darkness. It is the constant reason for us to be grateful. What John says secondly in this brief verse is that when the Word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. The phrase and dwelt among us, or made him dwelling among us. As we read this in English, it doesn't have any kind of connection in our minds and our thinking to the concept of a tent or a tabernacle. But not so for the people of the book. Not so for the Old Testament Jews. Not so for the New Testament God-fearing Gentiles who became Christians after first becoming themselves people of the book. Because the interesting thing is, is that in the Greek language, this particular word doesn't simply mean to dwell, but it more broadly means to dwell in a tent. And the word that which we use as tent, we think is the common word, we think the word tabernacle is the sacred word, but in the Old Testament, the word was one and the same. Uh, the tent of meeting that God had Moses to construct, that was the tabernacle. And this particular word in the Greek language, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this is the word that was used to, for all the tents, but specifically and particularly the tent of meeting. John uses that word so that it's appropriate to say the translation is this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us.
with all the associations then that that would bring to the mind of the believing Jew and the believing Gentile as people of the book. In Dr. James Montgomery Boyce's uh, series of commentaries on the Gospel of John, he says this association would have had several significant points of identification for the Jewish audience or even the Gentile audience who would read this for the very first time. He pointed out that the tabernacle was, in fact, understood to be God's dwelling place. In the presence of Israel, in the wilderness, they had a visible place. This is where God dwelt. This tent, this tabernacle, was the actual dwelling place of God. Tangible, visible. In the same way, John is saying, Jesus is the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle was also at the very center of Israel's camp. Every day that they would travel and then form up at night, the tabernacle was at the very center of their formation to represent the very center of the life of Israel in no different way than the Son of God and tabernacling among us as the very center of the lives of Christians. Boyce points out thirdly that also the tabernacle is the place where once the law was given to Moses, the stone tablets were kept in the Ark of the Covenant there in the tabernacle to represent that in the tabernacle you have the fullness of the revelation of God's will for his people. And Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation for his people. Further, the tabernacle was the place where Moses would go to meet with God, to receive revelation from God. The tabernacle, the place where God reveals himself. Jesus, the place and person where God reveals himself. Though we'll look at this next week. Verse 18 tells us that the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he, Jesus, has made him known. The full revelation of God and the Father. Further, the tabernacle was the place and the only place where Israel was allowed to make its sacrifices and atonement for sin. Jesus is the only one who has made the sacrifice and atonement for sin. The tabernacle was the place where the people went to worship. Jesus said, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not in Jerusalem, not on that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And John Jesus was elliptically pointing out to himself. Jesus is the place where God's people meet to worship. If Jesus is not here, then nothing of worship happens. When believers come together, the promise of Christ, where even as few or two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. 
What makes this a place of worship is not the kind of building. It's not a pulpit. It's not anything that you might possibly conceive of that you can see. It is the presence of Jesus that makes this a place of worship. Because when the Word became flesh, He tabernacled among us. And Jesus continues to dwell with His people. All the ways of the tabernacle were temporary. All the ways of Christ are permanent and everlasting. This is why we're grateful for this season to be reminded that in Christ, God came into this world to be with his people. The third thing which John says in this passage has to do with how Jesus displayed and manifested his glory to us. I like the translations that say, and we beheld his glory. It has a little more robust sense than, and we saw his glory. It may be just because we don't use the term behold very much in our contemporary language. But one commentator points out that in the Gospel of John, every time this refers to Christ or something Jesus has done, it takes on a heightened significance. It's not just like we saw, but we saw and it held our attention and in some sense it captivated us. And John is saying here that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, the people of the book, the attentive Jewish believer reading this, could not read the word glory without making another association connected to the Old Testament temple. You've heard the word Shekinah and Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah itself does not appear in the Old Testament, but it appears in Jewish writings and commentaries about the Old Testament. By the time of the New Testament, the idea of Shekinah had become a dominant way of the Jews to think about the glory of God as God's glory had first manifested itself at the tabernacle when the tabernacle was first constructed and that great overpowering cloud came down and filled the tabernacle so that Moses could not go near. And then that abiding cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night represented to the Jewish mind the Shekinah glory, the word Shekinah connected to the word to dwell, the abiding presence of God, which could not be conceived of without conceiving of a magnificence of glory, an overpowering sense of the presence of God. And John says, and we beheld his glory. But if you read through all the Gospel of John, 
and all the instances where we see John saying, and in this, Jesus manifested his glory. It is not always in something overpowering. It's not always something that might have been uh, awe-inspiring, which would cause the disciples not to be able to approach Christ. Instead, it was often in very direct, significant miracles which Jesus did. But it was ultimately in the character and conduct of Jesus throughout his life and then in his sacrifice in weakness upon the cross. John says, we beheld his glory. And then it's connected to the idea full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus in the Incarnation is different than the glory of God upon Mount Sinai. It's different than the glory of God when it filled the tabernacle. It's different than the glory of God as the pillar of fire bearing presence with the people of God in the wilderness. The glory of God is found in His grace and His truth. And it's His grace and it's truth with directly, which directly addresses the human condition. We began by remarking upon the darkness that pervades this world that always accompanies this season, which even has its power to affect and sometimes inflict us as Christians. Grace and truth are those things that Jesus brings that addresses the problems inherent in a fallen human world. Because the darkness is more powerful than those it possesses, no one, no one can help himself toward the light. The Christian faith says that the human race is not like people wandering around in darkness looking for the light switch, hoping that they can feel along the wall until they can find the plastic protuberance that they can turn and the light comes on, or waving their arms around so that the string that is attached to the bulb can be pulled. The darkness is such that they don't understand the light. And they can't be helped from within the darkened room. It takes grace. Grace is always about God's initiative. Grace is always God's choice to go ahead of us and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Grace is always God's unmerited favor. Grace is always what changes us and begins to take us out of this darkness. Before grace, we are completely owned by the darkness, blinded by the God of this world, darkened in our understanding, 
alienated from the life of God, loving the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. Evil is the master which reigns in the domain of darkness in which we live. Jesus pronounced this verdict. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But Jesus also said this, if you abide in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Grace, the great need. Truth, which Jesus brings. Inside, there is no hope. Only from outside can we possibly be saved. Many of you are aware of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his story, his life, German Lutheran pastor, theologian, before and during World War II. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, remains a classic on what it means to follow Christ. It's the only Christian book I've read three times. I'm still trying to get it. But Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in 1943 by the Gestapo. Ultimately, he was executed for his alleged involvement in an assassination plot against Hitler. He was hanged on the 9th of April, 1945, just two weeks before that concentration camp was liberated by the U.S. forces. In one of his letters a letter to his fiancée, he expressed this one lesson he had learned in prison about life. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. the darkness. It's a door that has to be opened from the outside. This season will always occur each year with the darkness of the world around it as it did 2,000 years ago. But darkness has never been the whole story, and darkness is not the end of the story. Because, as Scripture says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The shepherds heard the story proclaimed by angels bright how Christ, the Lord of glory, was born on earth this night. To Bethlehem they sped and in the manger found him as angel heralds said, This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air 
dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God. From sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe, O Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know, bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day. Amen. We thank you, Father, in deepest gratitude for the incarnation of your Son. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you in his name.